we are fighting and we have warriors again. And I think it's a really, really good time for Indigenous people in this country, and uh, it's only going to get better and stronger. Welcome to People of Yellowknife, the show that takes you to Canada's north, more precisely to the city of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. This episode is about the indigenous people on whose traditional land Yellowknife is built. I talked to Catherine Lefferty, who is a counselor for the Yellowknife Stena First Nation and who works at the Deshinta Center for Research and Learning. Catherine, who is 36, had to face many difficult situations early on in her life, such as being in foster care and being pregnant at a young age. She wrote a book about her story with the name Northern Wildflower, and in November last year I met with her to talk about it. But before we hear from her personal story, Catherine explains what changed for indigenous people in the Northwest Territories in the last decades. In the last, um, I'd say, 50 years, there has been tremendous changes in our communities in the Northwest Territories. First of all, money came in uh, with the gold mine on uh, the 1940s. Giant mine came and opened its doors and started mining for gold. And before then... Um, There was just the trade with the Hudson Bay Company. There was a lot of uh, fur trade going on at that time. Um, and so when money came in, um, Yellowknife really boomed. And a lot of people from the South um, started hearing about this place called Yellowknife and started coming here for work because they knew, oh, you know, it's it's a, it's a kind of a cash grab. We can go and we can we can have nothing and then we can get rich. And so that's what actually ended up happening. A lot of families came here and you can see that they um, are the ones that own the big houses and they're uh, passing their their money onto their children and their children's children and stuff like that. And um, they bought, probably bought these houses for a dollar back in that day, you know, and they just claimed the, claimed the land in it. Um, but the indigenous people didn't have that opportunity. They were told that they needed to live in housing and they needed to um, abide by the, the rules in society. And so uh, when, you know, it came time for them to actually try to, to work, it was difficult for them to get a job. Um, so they usually got the, the less paying jobs, like the laborist jobs and stuff like that. And, um, and then after the gold mine shut down, there was, there was, uh, diamonds and diamonds was the big thing with money. And, um, when the diamond mines moved in, it was really hard for a lot of families to stay together because the diamond mines were way out in the barren lands. And so, um, a lot of men had to go to work for two weeks at a time and then, um, you, they'd come back home and maybe go and spend all their money, um, on, on drinking or whatever. And that was, that was at the time that was about, Uh, 15 years ago and you can see that a lot of family there was a lot of breakdown in families and that was because there was just this huge rush of money that came into the community and they didn't really know what to do with it and there was just like all this money so then of course with the economy changing um drugs come in and you know all all different kinds of things um Yellowknife really turned into a, a big city then when the diamond mines kind of opened um, so yeah, my grandmother was born on an island with no electricity, no running water. Um, she lived completely off the land and, um, 
that was what worked well for our people. We we were content and um, we had our own laws that we followed. Um, we we were really connected to the land and the spirit. And um, we have hunting grounds and trap lines all over. And um, those are being, they're still being used by, by people that still um, know those trails and those historic places. But um, those kind of things need to be kept alive through telling stories and um, passing that knowledge down because our elders are getting older now, and, and those elders were taught by their elders, so it, that's how our oral traditions get passed down. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's really, it's, for me, I haven't really seen the changes because I'm, you know, I'm only 36, but um, my grandmother's definitely seen a lot of changes in her lifetime because she went from living completely off of the land to living in a, in, in the city or the town of Yellowknife, where before that there was no, no town there at all. Like the downtown area of Yellowknife was all blueberries. And, um, that's where the Yellowknife's Denny hunted for moose. So now it's just completely changed around since the forties. It's just been booming and booming and. Um, our people kind of got shuffled into a corner um, on the peninsula of Dilo and then in, in Deta, which is a community about 30 kilometers from here. And so, yeah, there's been encroachment, definitely. There's been land encroachment um, and uh, dispossession of homes. And, and that's another huge thing is the housing system, um, you know, uh, our people lived in canvas tents and teepees and we were fine with that and we we, we lived in community where our grandmothers lived with us and our aunties and uncles and everybody kind of all lived together and helped each other. And when the government came in and said, here's a home, um, start paying rent and your grandmother's going to go live in an old folks home and your kids are going to go to school, it, it divided up the family and people kind of didn't know what to do anymore. And, um, Another thing was that our men um, were told, no more hunting, you have to start now working in an office. And, you know, they they tried to fit into that society, but unfortunately it was really difficult for them because they didn't have the education. And even if they did have the education, it was hard for them to find a job because they were discriminated against and, and oftentimes weren't even hired at all. So it's all of these, there's layers and layers and layers of um um, issues that uh, and barriers that Indigenous people face in the Northwest Territories and are still facing today, but we're constantly fighting. When Catherine told me about her childhood, it was hard for me to keep up because there were a lot of changes. She was born in Fort McMurray, northern Alberta. Then her parents moved to a city outside of Toronto with her, and after some time, her mother broke up with her father and went to Calgary with her. Eventually, they moved to Yellowknife, her mother's hometown. That's where Catherine's life, quote, took a little bit of a turn. My mom was drinking heavily at the time, and um, I was often dropped off at my grandmother's house. And so I say that my grandmother raised me from a young age, because really she did. Like, I think I spent a lot more time with my grandmother than I did with my own mother for most of my life. So... Um, I was always kind of back and forth, though, and I've had this tumultuous relationship with my mother um, for as far as I can remember, and I still do because she still tr struggles with drugs and alcohol addiction, and it's it's also from her growing up and, and her numbing her own pain from the loss of losing her three brothers, particularly her little brother, Rex, who, was, uh, who went missing back in the 80s when I think I was only one years old, so that was really hard for her. Um, 
so yeah, growing up in Yellowknife, um, once I actually ended up staying here because we, we did get shuffled to, um, uh, Northern Ontario where, um, my mom, I don't know for the life of her, why she, she moved us there with some strange man that she was dating at the time. But, um, we lived there, I think for about a year and I was actually, um, placed in the foster care system for some time. And that was really scary time for me because I was away from my family and it was really, um, like I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, and I didn't know if I was ever going to see my family again, basically, being in foster care felt like a life sentence for me. I don't really know how long I was there. I, I'd like to say I was probably there um, for about six months. It could have been more, it could have been less, but at that time in my life, I was, I think I was 10 years old or so, and I don't really recall. I think, I feel like a lot of these memories that I have, I've blocked because they hurt. I think there was about maybe... 10 children at one time like there was quite a few children in that house and they were arranged from babies all the way up to my age and they were all indigenous and uh the 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 parents were very strict and very uncaring um you know like go to sleep at seven o'clock and like just rules that were really um just not fair and just not you know um conducive to you know like a, a regular lifestyle like family living um there was no like tucking in and good night and there was no hugs or kisses and um now looking back I realize that a lot of these foster parents do get into being foster parents not just because they actually really sincerely care about the children but it's because it's a paycheck they're getting a thousand dollars a month or so I think per child so when you kind of add that up you know that's that's actually pretty good money um, and so when foster parents go in and actually foster foster children not caring about the child but just caring about the paycheck what ends up happening is they're they're just as neglected, if not worse, um, than where they were coming from in their own family. Because at least in their own family, they had unconditional love, no matter what. Even though there was some, there's some issues there. Um, like with my mom, having to um, having her children placed in foster care because of a domestic like violence, like a partner that abused her. I feel like the system could have actually worked with her to help her instead of just clawing her children away from her and saying, oh no, you know, you, you this is your fault. It almost like places the shame on her even more. And um, thankfully, like my mom was healthy enough to actually um, work towards getting us back. But lots of mothers give up because it's just so difficult. Not like having your own children beside you and feeling so ashamed of yourself for losing them. A lot of them just keep drinking because that's the only way they know how to deal with the feelings that they're going through. And it's really difficult to pick themselves back up and be like, okay, I've got to do this. And um, so yeah, like she had many things coming at her. I don't know how she left her abusive partner, but Thankfully, she did. And I think that really changed me and it, it kind of made me into um, a rebellious teenager. And so I was just kind of like wild and 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 just angry at the world and angry that, you know, I didn't have this perfect family that a lot of the people I went to school with had. And, and I was just um, didn't understand why things were the way they were for my family. As I have been growing up in pretty stable circumstances, being in foster care seems to be already pretty hard to handle for a child. 
For Catherine, it didn't take long before another change came to her life. I was 15 years old when I uh, found out that I was pregnant, and I tried to uh, put it up put it behind me and not think about it. For some reason, I thought if I just didn't think about it, then it would just go away on its own. Um, but uh, obviously, I couldn't ignore that I was, um, that I had a growing belly and a baby inside me. So um, I, I stopped um, hanging out with my regular friends and kind of doing all the things that I was doing before. I was drinking heavily and stuff like that. And I knew well enough to not drink, um, which is thankfully I, I didn't. And um, I told my family that I was pregnant and, and everybody was pretty upset with me and wanted me to get an abortion and those kind of things. And I don't know why, but for some reason I was just against abortion. I didn't want to do do that for some reason. And um, so I uh, I went through half of my pregnancy not really thinking about what I was going to do. And uh, when I finally... Um, said, okay, like, you know, sat down with my doctor and she, she sat me down and said, you know, you need to really think about what you're going to do here um, because you're going to have this baby. And um, I, I thought about my life and I thought about, you know, I'm living in a housing with my grandmother and my little sister. My grandmother can barely get by as it is. Um, if I keep this baby, you know, I'm going to be, um, I'm not going to be able to do all the things that I wanted to do. Um, Actually, I didn't even really know what it was that I wanted to do, uh, but I didn't want to put a burden on my grandmother. Um, so I, yeah, I I just told the doctor, you know, let me have a look at these adoption papers because she told me that there that was an option and I didn't really know how it worked. So um, she sent me home with two um books of, of uh, requests from people in Canada that were looking to adopt. And so I took them home and I read them and one of them really stood out to me. It was a family in the north, further north in the Yukon actually, then they weren't able to have children. So um, that to me just kind of like touched my heart, you know, like these people really, really wanted to have a baby and they weren't able to. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll just talk to them and meet them and see what they're like and I called them which was really really hard for me I was alone too and a lot of the things I do um when, it, when it's big decisions like that for some reason I make them alone I don't know why I don't consult with my family and my friends but uh, I didn't tell anybody and I called them and they they pretty much came to Yellowknife on the first flight and met me and we went for dinner and they They were just the nicest people and they were just generally, you know, wanting a baby and just um, the, the, the woman was a nurse. She was a head nurse at the local community clinic and uh, her husband owned a company and they were, they were not wealthy, but they were, you know, middle class. And um, so I thought, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm going to make up my mind here and I had conditions set with the lawyer that, you know, I would be able to send the baby um, gifts and stuff like that throughout her life and keep in constant contact with her until she was about 12 years old. And um, 
she would know me and she would know that she was adopted and all those things. And she would have my name as her middle name. So I had all these stipulations in there, um, set for her and that she would know where she came from and, and those kind of things. And so, yeah, when the, when the day came when she was born, well, first of all, she didn't want to come out. The baby like was not ready for the world. And, but she was almost a month overdue. She was really, really overdue. And I was, um, um, in so much pain during the labor, it was really, really intense. And eventually after, you know, two grueling days of like torturous labor, I finally, um, was able to have a cesarean section. And so the doctors, um, did the surgery and her, uh, adoptive mother was in the room and she was given to her adoptive mother right away. And, um, that's kind of like when my heart sunk. I was kind of like, that's when it like really hit home. I was like, wow, okay, this is not my baby. Like I just kind of went through all of this pain and everything and, um, to give her away. Like it, it, I think is the, the most selfless thing I've ever done and ever will do. And I, I feel like now I, um, I definitely have closure with that. And for a long time though, it took me, it took me a long, long time to, um, to come to grips with what I, the decision I made and that I couldn't go back on it. I couldn't just change my mind and say, Hey, I want my baby back. Um, she wasn't my baby and I had to really, really come to grips with that. And so when I was in the hospital, um, I, I, after having her, it was really, really early in the morning and I went to go just have a look at her. I had to get up and walk around anyway. And the nurses were telling me to get up. And so, I, uh, I went to just go look at her to see what she looked like because I hadn't seen her. And she was so beautiful and so chubby. She was a really, really big baby. <clears throat> and, um, I was just kind of admiring her through the window in the nursery. And then the, the, one of the nurses on duty said, you know, you're her mom. You can come on in and, you know, you can take her back to your room. And I was just kind of like, you know, I had the opportunity at that point in time to say, well, this is an adoption here and I probably shouldn't, but I didn't. I just took her with me and wheeled her back in her little bassinet to my room and sat with her for a little while and, you know, undressed her and looked at her little body and just saw how beautiful she was and uh, admired her and, you know, pet her hair and everything and gave her kisses and told her, you know, I loved her and, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely one of those moments in my life where I, I will never ever forget it. Like I'll always remember, um, that I had this beautiful little gift. And, um, so when I, when I finally brought her back to her room, um, or to the nursery, it just so happened, which is, you know, throughout my life, my life has been ironic like this. It just so happened that her adoptive mother was coming to go and to come and see her. And it was just like in the movie, she just kind of stopped and was like, you know, oh my gosh, she's changing her mind. And she, I think she was throughout the whole entire thing. She was a little bit worried that that was going to happen. She was probably told that I could at any moment change my mind and she was prepared for that. But I think that at that time it just um, was really devastating for her and you can tell that she was really hurt. And um, so later on in that day, the uh, the lawyer came to see me. She must have talked to the lawyer and the lawyer came in and said, you know, Catherine, like if you're changing your mind, this is this and this. And, and I kind of just 
was like, no, you know, I'm not changing my mind. And I, I didn't really have too much of a conversation with her. I was really upset at that point. Yeah. And so when it came time to bring the baby home, everybody was kind of like surrounding us in the, in our, in, in the hospital room. And, um, I felt very, almost like out of body, like it, I wasn't even there. And I, it was like, I was just being used for, um, this other purpose that was greater than me. Um, and so not use, I guess that's not a good word, but there was some other purpose going on that was greater than me. And I was just kind of bearing witness to what was happening. And so, yeah, after she went to her parents, her new parents and her new home, um, we kept in contact and I sent her birthday presents every year and, you know, um, Christmas presents and stuff like that and cards and her family, um, also sent pictures. So I have lots of pictures of her, um, all the way growing up, even even some home videos and stuff like that. And I did get to meet her when she was 12 years old in the city that she lives in now. She no longer lives in the north. She lives in the city. She's 20 years old now. Very, very beautiful. And, uh, yeah, I got to, uh, I got to meet her and that was really nice. So we don't have a relationship right now and that's up to her. And I think since she's still kind of figuring her own self out and, you know, at that age, you're kind of, She's not quite a teenager, but she's just becoming a young adult. Um, I think that eventually, I hope anyway, that she'll eventually want to know who her little brother and sister are because she does know that she has extended family and other brothers and sisters. So hopefully one day she'll come over and visit us. These were two chapters of Catherine's personal life. But of course, a lot more happened that doesn't fit in this episode. When she was older, she went to college and later to university where she studied justice. Besides her first daughter that she has born when she was 15, she has two children who live with her, a son and a daughter. And although, or maybe because she was a foster child herself, she is now a foster parent of a teenager. Catherine had a lot of turns in her life, and to me it is very impressive where she stands today. She is a counselor for the Yellowknife Stanley First Nation, a group of indigenous people in the Northwest Territories. She also works as a director of Indigenous Education at the Deshinta Center for Research and Learning. I let her explain what that is. It's a program where we bring students um, that are getting uh, university credits through the University of uh, British Columbia or through the University of Alberta in Indigenous Studies. Um, we bring them out on the land and that's where they learn. They learn from the land, they learn from their elders, local knowledge experts, indigenous faculty on um, topics such as uh, colonization and decolonization. And um, they're getting um, a unique uh, learning opportunity because the first, well, basically um, when the students are um, brought on site, they're brought out to what we call an out camp where they are living completely off the grid, just like our ancestors did. They're living like my grandma did, uh, um, sleeping on spruce bough floor. They don't have a fridge. They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. So they're fetching water from the lake. Um, they're, they're doing everything like their ancestors did and learning how, what a difficult lifestyle that was, um, and how important it is to connect, um, physically, emotionally, and spiritually to the land and to our community. Like together, we realize that, you know, when we're living like that, we need to depend on each other for certain things. And, um, so it's, it's quite an amazing learning opportunity. And what happens with a lot of the students is that they're just, they're just transformed. 
they come out of the program after six to eight weeks and they are completely confident in, um, in who they are in their identity. And that's one of the big takeaways from, uh, Dishinta and why I work with Dishinta because it is life changing and it is a solution to many, many social problems in our communities, such as, you know, um, mental health, addictions, poverty, um, this education gap in the NWT. Um, there's just so many things that Dishinta can help to, f- to find solutions for. And, um, it's just, it's just an amazing program. So I'm really, really happy to be a part of it. My last question during our conversation was what it means for Catherine to be indigenous in the current time. And here is her answer. I feel like we're at a time right now um, in society where indigenous people are finally being heard. And um, it's really nice to know that, you know, we are able to say what we need to say without being um, told to sit down and be quiet and um, we are being heard and we are fighting and we have warriors again and I think it's a really really good time for indigenous people in this country and uh, it's only going to get better and stronger and I think we cannot forget where we come from and that um Our, our spirits need to remain strong and that we need to respect the land because we are definitely like the guardians of the land. And, um, you know, we kind of like protect our, our sacred, um, spaces. And so we need to always do that no matter what we do. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful to be an indigenous person today. And, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't, I, I was actually ashamed that I was, came from, you know, an indigenous family. And now I'm thankful, you know, that I, I understand because, you know, I was ashamed because I didn't know why my family was the way they are. And now I understand why it's because we were just, um, you know, forced into assimilation. We were forced to, um, be dependent on the government and we were just forced to, um, kind of like you know fit into society when really we we shouldn't have ever had to and thankfully you know my daughter and my son are going to grow up um, being proud of who they are and it's completely different now you know I look at my daughter and I'm like wow she wants to wear my moccasins and she wants to like show them off and when I was little that's the last thing I wanted to do. You know, I was so embarrassed that I had these uh, clothes that my grandma made me that were just beautiful. And now I'm like, wow. So it's really definitely taken, I can see the change and I can see how we're being more and more respected. And that's from standing up for ourselves. And if we never did um, have this revolution that's coming, um, that's been in the in the making now for some time, then I think that we would still kind of be way back where we were. But um, we're I think we're coming full circle now. And um, I think we're definitely, it's a good time right now for Indigenous people. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have a question or feedback, you can leave a comment on my blog at jonas-schönfelder.de There's a link in the show notes. People of Yellowknife is produced by me, Jonas Schönfelder. Thank you for listening and see you next time.